Welcome to Evolve. My name is Brandon Silver and I believe that evolution of the world requires evolution of the individual. I believe entrepreneurs are consistently changing that world and we always will be. So with this show I will bring you the people and ideas with tools necessary to hack your growth in your business and your life. Together let's ask the world's biggest questions, build businesses to solve them, and live happy and fulfilling lives in the process. It's time to evolve. Hey everyone, welcome to Evolve. Today's guest is a trained psychotherapist who's logged over 3,000 hours in session with psychotherapy clients, worked with thousands of the world's best startup founders as a transformative executive coach, and a former batch director of Silicon Valley's most prestigious seed accelerator, Y Combinator, which has funded over 2,000 startups, including industry juggernauts like Dropbox, Airbnb, Stripe, Reddit, and DoorDash has a community of over 4,000 founders with thousands more in their startup school and a cumulative valuation of $155 billion. With her powerful insights into the high-stakes, high-pressure chaos that accompanies startup life, she supports founders to build emotional strength and leadership skills for understanding and managing emotions like stress and anxiety, fighting the ever-elusive balance, avoiding burnout, improving relationship communication and team dynamics, and understanding founder psychology. As Michael Siebel, CEO of Y Combinator, has stated, she makes your life exist in two halves, pre-working with her and post-working with her, with game-changing transformation in between, leading to unforetold growth for CEOs and their companies. Aside from overseeing all aspects of hundreds of founder experiences at Y Combinator, she has shared her gr- grounded and wise advice in Fast Company, CNN, the Y Combinator podcast, and dozens of workshops and trainings sharing how early stage startup founders can effectively scale themselves in order to scale their company. I'm honored to welcome trained psychotherapist and executive coach at foundercoach.io, former batch director of Y Combinator, and a woman who once held the Guinness World Record in Ultimate Frisbee, Amy Beekler. Brandon, wow. I have never heard myself described like that. Um, wow, that felt like really a gift. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, it was awesome to kind of dive into your world and you know find out a little bit about you. And seeing that you became a licensed therapist before joining the YC team, mm-hmm. what drew you to the world of startups and YC? Yeah, that's a good question. So just one really brief, small clarification. I don't have my license yet. I'm still in the okay. process of it. I've been working on that for the last five years after graduating from uh, grad school. Uh, but that's just a small note that only therapists who are listening to this will care about. Um, <laughs> yeah, so when I was in therapist grad school, uh, in my second year, I did a, an internship with really high trauma, high violence high schoolers. Um, in a a, like low income part of the city in San Francisco. And, um, I had never been in tech, like tech wasn't a thing. I happened to live in San Francisco, but I haven't, I hadn't been here for that long. And when I worked with that kind of population and that kind of violence, um, alongside some of the world's richest people who have the most money and resources, the disparity for me was confusing and disorienting and didn't make any sense Um, and it was that year that I felt like I needed to get in with like the people in tech who have the power and the resources and the money. And my idea that was like quite fuzzy at the time was if I can work alongside them in some mysterious capacity, 
And if I can get those people to become compassionate and self-aware and thoughtful about themselves, then I know that they will be able to turn that outside and that Mm. they will be able to see people like my clients, like these kids um, in a different way to really see them as sort of human beings who need help as well. And that was sort of like my idea. If I can get all of the rich, powerful people to care about themselves, then I know that they'll care about other people. And that's sort of how I think the world can change. They'll be Mm -hmm. able to funnel resources and attention into the the homes of the people who really need it. Yeah, I think that's powerful. Um, Yeah. So so how did you get on with YC? Yeah, such a good question. It's only in hindsight that my path seems linear. Like at that time, again, I didn't have any connections in tech. I didn't really even know what that was. I didn't like, I knew what Twitter was, you know, like I was on Facebook, um, but there was no granularity whatsoever for me in that landscape. And, uh, before I went to grad school, I was a commercial real estate manager randomly, like some of the high rises in the financial district. And, um, one of my colleagues was a recruiter. And I was like, great recruiter. She can help people get jobs. I'm looking for a job. I'm just going <laughs> to call her up. You know, it's been right. a couple of years, but we'll see what happens here. And in the, the time that I had been in grad school, she had a married a founder who was funded by YC and sort of peeled away from her agency to start her own. And because of her sort of network in tech through YC, she knew like the partnership at YC and YC just happened to be recruiting for my position. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I called her and she was like, great timing. I think you have like the perfect skill set for this job. It's this company called Y Combinator. And I was like, why what? Yeah. Oh, and I went and interviewed and that is just how it started. But again, wow. like in some ways it's to my benefit that I had no idea what this thing was. Like I didn't mm-hmm. know who Sam Altman was. I didn't know who Kevin Hale was or Dalton Caldwell or Michael or PB, like PG. These were all just names. And so I could go in and not be super starry eyed and not like put right. these people on pedestals. And I could, I could say things like, I don't know if this process makes sense. And I see a giant opportunity here to like change the program in this way. Or, you know, I could also advocate for founders to them because they were just sort of people to me. And I saw opportunities for change. Um, and I wasn't afraid to take them. Mm. Um, but it's really just sort of to answer your question through happenstance and serendipity that it all happened. It was, it was through like my own deep desire to move forward in this particular direction. And I happened to be able to see a door. Right. Took that opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what drew you to being a psychotherapist in the first place and then executive coaching later? Yeah, that's a good question too. Um, I graduated from college in 2008, which was the middle of the financial meltdown all over the world. Mm. And uh, In undergrad, I studied French and political science, but I was also an RA and a head RA. And so had spent years building communities and building strong relationships between people and in some ways being a program manager and sort of a camp counselor. And <laughs> like, you know, the RA thing is uh, a little bit like a cheerleader, a little bit like another hen. Right. Um, and that, that role for me was always so fun and what made me feel so alive, not just sort of building programs and experiences for people to connect, but like having somebody knock on my door in the middle of the night crying and saying like, this thing happened and I need support. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't find a job anywhere in the world in 2008 and had a little bit of a quarter life crisis as many of us did. Right. And in some ways I had to really sit down and come to terms with like, what did I love to do? What made me mm. feel most alive? Um, I couldn't find anything in political science and French, totally unsurprising. 
And so I had to sort of think about what I wanted to do. And I wanted to do more of what made me feel good. And what made me mm. feel good was supporting people. Um, and I like moved out to the Bay Area and like lived on my friend's couch for like three months in Berkeley. And she was getting her master's in economics at UC Berkeley. And she passed by the Wright Institute where I got my master's degree in counseling psychology every day as she was walking to school. And she was like, I think that like, this is a therapy school. And I biked <laughs> past it that weekend because I wasn't doing anything else. They happened to be having an open house. Mm. I happened to stop in. I happened to like absolutely love everyone that I met. I happened to love the program. I happened to apply. I happened to get <laughs> in. And so it was sort of like, that's how I knew, like I, I knew what felt awesome to me. And I knew that there was some sort of a career that was kind of like that. And I, it, I like sort of pursued it. It felt awesome. There were no red flags and I kept going. Mm, yeah. In terms of how I became an exec coach, when I started working at YC, which was after grad school, after I'd opened my private therapy practice, um, it became really clear to me that founders are people too. And founders have lots mm. of feelings and the world that they live in is really chaotic and really uncertain. And that causes even more feelings than those they'd have naturally. Um, and because I just happened to have a background in like emotional support, I figured that I could put these two pieces together and support founders in an even deeper way than I was by my sort of standard role as batch director, which was not standard, <laughs> but that's a separate story. Um, the thing about being a therapist is there are a lot of ethical rules and obligations to it um, and legal rules and obligations that are designed to keep the client safe, but they also meant it would be impossible for me to be a therapist. I couldn't be a therapist and YC's batch director at the same time. Mm. And the thing about coaching is there aren't any rules and regulations and that's right. usually not great in a lot of different cases. Um, but in this case, it sort of worked to my benefit. I couldn't be a therapy to coach to founders, but I could coach them and maintain mm -hmm. everything else in my life. Uh, so that's how I got into exec coaching. Okay. That was sort of the only path forward. Yeah. Tell me mm -hmm. a little bit about, um, you know, your five years working with YC. What are some of the biggest lessons you learned during that time? Oh gosh. Lessons learned. That's such a good question. Um, Oh man, that's such a good question. I mean, I feel like I can recite some of the talks that they give to every YC founder by heart at this point in terms <laughs> of like the advice of like starting now and starting small and mm -hmm. maintaining perspective on the, the actual problem that you're going to solve and like having a clear line in your solution between where you are now and solving the problem. Um, talking to users and like making sure what you're building is, is what they want, you right. know, and, and having a really close connection with your users, my clients. Um, yeah. I mean, I feel like I was so taking a YC bath for so long. It's hard <laughs> for me to even step out and dry off and be like that had eucalyptus in it. And yeah. I smell a little bit of lavender. <laughs> um, yeah. But it, it's sort of like all the YC isms that are on their blog and are on their website feel like a part of my personality and my character at this point. Mm -hmm. um, there was something that was really congruent for me about how YC cares really deeply, but is also DIY. You mm -hmm. know, like even in my, in my work now with clients, I present all the options, some of which they can see, some of which they can't, but I always really support them in the decisions that they make. They know mm -hmm. best, you know, right. and no one can know what is the best decision for them and their company better than they can. 
right? Mm-hmm. And so like, just like YC partners do, I present options and we talk through why they're picking the one that they are. And I sort of analyze it to make sure there isn't any unconscious emotional bias that they're going into, that they're not choosing that because it's familiar, that they're not choosing it because um, they think it's the right thing to do, you know? And so in, in my way, it feels like, I don't know, I don't know if this is good or bad and we'll see how much this changes. <laughs> I feel like I'm a little bit still the extension of, of YC and, and helping mm-hmm. founders do what's best for them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you mentioned some of the powerful talks that they have, and there are several um, reviews and things that I read from you about mm-hmm. one of your talks around um, co-founder communication. And that's like a huge reason that many startups fail is from co-founder communication. So yes. can you describe to us relationship debt and the three levels mm-hmm. of communication? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm glad you're asking this. I just explained it to a client this week. So in any relationship, there is always going to be tension. Tension is a natural component of two people with their own unique experiences, personalities, and needs um, meeting each other. There will Mm -hmm. be friction points between those perspectives. That's like normal and that's fine. And um, what happens is when there's too much tension in the relationship that builds up over time that's never addressed, Mm -hmm. there are sort of two options. Like you can either address the tension in a proactive and healthy way, or you can let the tension run the show and sort of like, uh, that usually results in a fight and an active conflict and in lots of shouting and bad feelings. And, um, if there's too much of that option that's taken, that leads to, uh, relationship failure. And so, um, relationship debt is exactly like technical debt for those of you guys who code out there. It's the accumulation of, um, emotional baggage, over time that comes from not tackling the tension and Mm -hmm. not like engaging in conflict in healthy and productive ways with clear communication, right? If there's too much technical debt in someone's, um, tech stack, I don't know if these are the (laughs) technical person, you know, like the app will crash and shit will go down and like things will be like things will break and you have to manage technical debt as you go along in order for the ship to function. And Mm -hmm. it's exactly the same in relationships where you have to find healthy ways of addressing the natural tension that arises between people in order to, for the relationship to keep moving forward. Right. And a level, yeah. So a level three conversation, that's sort of like the funny way that, um, it's like the funny term that people seem to latch onto, which surprises me, but a level three conversation, uh, is that it's the conversation that people have. That's the only kind of conversation that resolves relationship debt because it's two people, two, three, four people, whatever, however big your team is sitting down and actually talking about the feelings and the mm. tension and the needs of what each, what each person needs in order to move forward. And the level three conversation is the joint problem solving situation that happens that allows people to move forward. A lot of times people sort of skate uh, along the surface, they don't quite dip down into the right. deeper level of the conversation needed in order to actually be discussing relationship debt. And I'm talking about like explicitly, like when you did this thing, it made me feel bad because I was expecting this. Mm-hmm. And going forward, what can we figure out together that like will not allow for this to happen for me or for you? Maybe that means I change something. Maybe it means you do, but we're just like, we're hashing it out. And by the way, this isn't a giant like heart to heart. And it (laughs) usually does not involve sobbing or like anything horrible. Like the thing about emotions is their information, right? Their data points. 
And so the, the thing about them is they're often hidden and they're sometimes hidden from ourselves. And so a level three conversation is you sitting down and being like, this is the fact of my emotion. Mm-hmm. How can we fix this using other facts? Do you have any like facts that I don't know? Right. Like we just, there's like emotions are so weird because they're whatever I am getting on a tangent about emotions, but that is the answer to your question. Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, I've had a, a couple other guests speak to emotions as data points like that and us making decisions. We, you know, when we sit down to make a decision, we want all the technical data. We want, you know, how much um, finances are coming in and out. We want all this. But there's also some data points that we aren't looking at, which are our emotions, perfect signals to tell us, hey, there may be something wrong here or you need to move in this direction. And why not have the entire picture to make that decision? Why not? I mean, I know that you did. That's like a hypothetical question, but the reason why not is because, um, most people do not understand their emotions Mm -hmm. and emotions are often uncomfortable. They are uncomfortable physical sensations in our body. And we tend to move away from what hurts. Mm -hmm. Right. And so like what's true is it's hard to have those conversations because they make us, they often feel bad. Right. Right. And the thing is like, that's in some ways true, but it doesn't have to be true. If you think about the emotions just as data points, and if you kind of sit with them and you ask, why am I feeling this? What am I feeling? Where does it come from? What's the function? What Mm -hmm. is it trying to tell me? Then it actually isn't uncomfortable. It can be helpful, you know, Mm -hmm. But, but yeah, that's the thing is like, we don't, we don't have the information because we often don't have the information even within our own selves, let alone knowing like what it's saying or what we need out of that emotion. Right. There are all of these reasons why we don't, we don't know what the emotional picture is for ourselves, let alone for someone else. Absolutely. And, And I think that's where my therapy background comes in is like, I, I tend to look at the white space behind test text. Mm-hmm. Right. Like our, our behaviors and what's in the observable world is like the black type face, but you can only see that when you're basing it in a context of all of the white space that surrounds us. That's often invisible, right. Mm-hmm. That just sort of like tends to fade off into the background. And that's, that's sort of my therapy background is like, I, I go there. <laughs> yeah. Um, in your experience working with first time founders and leaders, what are some of the common mistakes and other blind spots that you help them see? I think one of the things that I'm always struck by um, with first-time founders or early-stage founders, even in general, regardless of whether they're first-time, is um, feeling feeling like they're all alone mm. and feeling like uh, they're not doing anything right, and I th- and and the emotions that are associated with those lots of sadness, lots of depression, anxiety about like, I'm not doing anything right. And I should be doing a lot of these other things differently. And how would I even know anyway, what's right and what's wrong? Um, the only mistake, well, I wouldn't you know necessarily call it that, but the mistake there is in thinking that it's a reflection on you mm. as a founder and that it's not a reflection on simply the context in which you're in. And right the world that you live in, which the world of a founder is all uncertainty and it's all chaos and it's all a sea of incompetence because like nobody in the world has ever built the company that you've built in this time and place in this market using your particular expertise and your, um, 
background and your vision, your particular entree into the world, right? How you're launching the product to who, blah, blah, blah. And so there's no one in the world who could know any more than you know about what you're doing, right? And again, it's like the mistake or sort of like the failure point is in thinking that it's a reflection of yourself when it's not. It's just a reflection of what it's like to run a startup. And I think if, if founders can really externalize that, there is a lot more space to breathe and there's a lot more space mm. to think. The yeah. other thing about emotions is when they're really strong, um, when there's a lot of fear, especially, our brain chemistry shifts back into the limbic system that shifts back into like reptile mode. Right. And when our brains are running all on fear and chaos and uncertainty and the sense of like, I'm doing this wrong and, and I'm the worst and I'm alone in this, our frontal lobe shuts down. Our frontal lobe is a part of the brain that's responsible for higher level thinking, strategy, mm-hmm. rational thought, you know, like all the things that, that, you need. Yeah. <laughs> that you totally need. Right. And so the, the, the less, the more you can understand your feelings, be like, Oh, I'm doing the thing that I do. Or like, I feel like I'm completely crazy and totally insane and wrong. That's I, I don't, I shouldn't feel that way. It's the world that I'm in. That's crazy and uncertain and like chaotic. Um, I can soothe myself with that thought and shift my brain back into the frontal lobe so I can actually think about what I'm doing best and I can find good options. What sort of advice do you give to these founders to manage that emotion in the face of uncertainty? Yeah. Um, To slow down a little bit, uh, to take a breath, (laughs) (laughs) to think about how they're feeling, um, to think about what they're thinking. There are a lot of like different things more practically in terms of soothing anxiety and fear, um, grounding, grounding meditation, like getting back to your body again, taking deep breaths, closing your eyes, going for a walk around the block, remembering that you're okay. Remembering that this is normal. Um, Mm -hmm. exercising to get a little bit of that bit of that energy out, connecting with other founders, um, or Mm -hmm. your co-founder, you know, someone who like can really get it or at least who at least can really hear what's going on for you. So getting a sense of connection and remembering you're not alone in it. Um, connecting to mentors and peers who have been on the founder path before you and who can again, really empathize with what you're going through is helpful. It, yeah, those questions always sort of depend on the person, honestly, like what I sort of always ask when I'm, uh, in office hours of founders like that, like what feels good to you? Mm-hmm. You know, you're feeling like pretty crazy and you're feeling really anxious. Do you have a sense of like, what would help you feel calm? Because everyone has, has a different answer. Sometimes it's like, yeah, call my sister, like calling my sister, she always makes me feel okay. Or yeah, going for a walk on the beach and like feeling my, my feet in the cold sand. You know, everybody mm-hmm. sort of has a different skill set right. or box for how to feel better. And it's important to like, insert some tools there literally create a list like Mm -hmm. in your notes on your computer note things that make me feel good (laughs) like dump in a dozen bullets and in those moments go back to that list what about uh, their teams and managing them and their emotions especially keeping them motivated on this long journey that has you know additional initial days that are the toughest of their company when you start to manage a team Um, things get complicated (laughs) and that's like one of the pieces of YC advice that, uh, is in my experience and in my world, one of the most important things, which Mm -hmm. is like manage or sorry, hire slowly, Mm -hmm. you know, that's specifically for YC companies for sure, who get out of demo day with like millions of dollars in the bank, but no product market fit. 
Like the additional complexity of needing to manage even more psychologies than your own, despite the chaos of not having found product market fit is often beyond the capacities of most early stage founders. And so my first piece of advice is like, slow your roll a little bit and like, make sure that it's really the right time for you to hire before you do. For, for founders who are early stage enough, who know that they have product market fit or really closely approaching it and like absolutely need the help and need the team. Let me think of what's important in those days. I think the thing that I have found to be most powerful, powerful for those uh, founders is learning. This is like a little, this is like not a great answer. I have a lot of answers in my mind and I'm going to start with the one that's not quite as good, <laughs> but which I think is important. Um, learning to be appropriately transparent, mm. which means being thoughtful about the information you share about like, you know, metrics and how the product is doing and like where you're going, what your runway is, what your burn is. Like there's an amount of transparency that's appropriate and really healthy in the early days. In early days, I'm thinking like your headcount is no more than five or seven, 12 maximum. Um, but like motivating teams through showing them the output of their work, like, because we all did this, we got this great new client or because Mm -hmm. we all did this, we like shipped this awesome release. And like these, these all should make you feel good. And by doing that, that means that we're even closer to this like faraway milestone that we're all marching toward on a consistent, regular basis, like being able to motivate through, facts and figures. And again, a shared mission toward either the company vision or the next product milestone or the next funding milestone, like whatever you've sort of like roped your North star as being just making sure that you're clear and transparent about what everyone's contribution is in that. And making sure you're again, appropriately clear and transparent about how you're feeling, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you are pretty roller coastery in terms of like absolutely terrified and all over the place one day and the next day like so confident like things are really amazing all of the people that you hire are going to also feel the things that you're feeling and that right. is not good it's like a lot of wasted energy and effort uh because there are so many feelings thrown around all over the place that like a lot of work doesn't happen to get done and so you have to sort of manage your own psychology by this point as well Um, that's the less good answer. The better answer I think is like, um, on like at the point at which you're no longer all sitting in the same room and can easily like Japan style have side conversation, like take off your headphones and be like, Hey, what about this thing? Or did you see that or whatever? The, the point at which that stops, you need to start having one-on-ones with your team, like every week, have a meeting with the person. (laughs) set them up. It's a powerful management tool because the purpose of a one-on-one is to make sure that this person is unblocked, but also it's to make sure that this person absolutely knows what they're working on Mm -hmm. and why, and that they know that you're available to them and that you are there to help them and mentor them and make sure that they feel good. And in the early days of a startup, because there's so many other things going on, this like one opportunity to sit down for 20 or 30 minutes with the person that like has signed up their life to work (laughs) for you and your idea for like, I don't know, the next three to five to 10 years, like that is the most important thing in the world. You provide accountability, you give clear feedback, you receive clear feedback. You're like, what can I help you with? Are you clear in what you're doing? I love what you're doing. This is the best. You're so the best. This is great how can I be better for you? Great. I'm so glad we had this time together. Let me know if I can help with anything else. 
it like doesn't need to be more than 20 minutes. And it gets you so many loyalty points and relationship points so that in the moments when things are bad, you have so much relationship credit in the bank, you can sit down and say like, hey, how are you? It's so nice that we have this time all the time. I just want you to know that like you didn't, you didn't meet this goal that we've been talking about for months. And I want to know like, what was up for you with that? Like, you know, how important this is. How can I help you get back to good? How can I help make sure that this never happens before? I really want to understand what happened to you. Okay, great. And now we're aligned on how we're going to get you to the actual goal again immediately. Cause we've already come up with a plan. And it wasn't a big deal at all for me to say that you failed, which is exactly what this conversation is, right? Because like you trust me and you know that I have your best intentions at heart. And this is the way now that you know that you failed and that's okay. And this is the plan for you to not fail. And we're going to go do it. Yeah. I think um, a couple of points that you brought up that are so important in that is the first one of motivation and showing them the work that they're doing is actually helping you move towards the overall vision because now they are taking part ownership in that vision. They see that the work that they do directly correlates to the thing we're all working towards. Totally. Um, and then I think the the second important part is building that tribe, not just between, you know, I'm your boss and you are my employee, but the actual tribe of we're all together in this, building this together. Um, I'm here for you. You're here for me. This is a mutual beneficial relationship. Yeah. Let's, you know, both help each other out to reach this goal. Yeah, Totally. Yes, I think both of those are really important. Um, I'm just thinking, I had dinner with some friends last night and we were talking about exactly sort of where you're leaving off here, that tribe and how closely connected the relationships feel in the early days of a startup where there almost is no power dynamic. There's like very rarely a sense of like, I'm the boss and I'm the CEO. You know, like everybody's wearing every single hat. And Mm -hmm. everyone is just like desperately trying (laughs) to get something to work. You know what I mean? And that is the, that's the powerful motivating factor of any early stage team is feeling like you're all in it together. Mm -hmm. It's so critically important that each person's contribution is meaningful in moving everything forward. And if that dynamic goes on for too long, it becomes unhealthy. And it's like a funny invisible tipping point where um, it becomes an inappropriate boundary. You know, if every, if like you're tw- a 20 stage company and like, I don't know, your boss never seems like a boss, but then like sometimes, you know, it, it, okay, let me sort of back up and, and talk to you about how I see this in my founding teams and my, in my clients. It become, if that dynamic, the early stage dynamic goes on for way too long, then you as a founder will not have any idea how to sit somebody down and say, this is what I need you to do. Mm. This is your goal. This is how I'm going to hold you accountable, right? Like you're managing a team now. I need you to hold those people accountable. What is your plan for that? Right? Like those are the moments when you actually do start to assert that appropriate boundary because as a CEO or as a founder, I am a person who eventually will need to assert that I am the captain of the ship and certainly everyone is helping, helping that motivation doesn't go away, but it shifts and changes as it should. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, yeah, I have a lot to say about like the boundaries of Silicon Valley, but I think it's, I think sort of the failures, like the, it was like a few years ago that there were all those like sort of sex scandals and all these like crazy stories. Like Uber is a good example where it doesn't really seem like there's many appropriate boundaries and Uber is in some ways a bad example because I'm not familiar with it. They're not a YC company, but 
boundary crossings are really common in Silicon Valley because that early stage dynamic just happens for too long, you know? Mm-hmm. And so at some certain point, the CEO needs to be responsible for it and needs to be, needs to recognize, okay, a different dynamic is important and it's healthy for everyone here. Absolutely. I think that's a, an important aspect. Um, yeah. Some of the other things we talked about was, you know, managing your own emotions as a founder and being open and vulnerable about those things is really hard. Mm-hmm. And in the startup scene, there seems to be some people with a mask of like, everyone's crushing it. We're all doing great. Yeah. How have you seen this conversation shifting about mental health and startups? Yeah. It's a really good question. It was awesome to be at YC for the years that I was for many reasons. One being, you know, I don't even know how many hundreds of YC dinner talks I saw from like the world's best founders and VCs and like, you know, everybody coming in and sort of sharing their story. The cool thing is how the conversation around mental health and taking care of yourself and having a therapist or a coach evolved. Um, By the time I left YC, it was really common. I would say every, at least every other dinner, the founder who was giving a talk to the batch was saying how hard mentally Mm -hmm. and emotionally the startup journey was for them and how much they relied on a strong co-founder or a strong relationship or a really great executive coach or therapist to help them get, help them survive the really dark days and the tough times. Um, I'm really so glad that that conversation is shifting. Um, it's becoming okay and normal to know that you need support and to know that like you're not in this alone anymore. I think in the early days, which weren't that long ago, like in the last couple of decades, there were no manuals on how to do anything. Like nobody could know that this is normal. It's normal to feel insane 95% (laughs) of the time. You know what I mean? And now like resource after resource where it's really okay. Um, Drew Houston, the founder of Dropbox, has had come in and he he gives a great talk uh, when he talks the first night of the batch. And one of the things he taught he describes is like as a startup founder, you go from being a generalist, you wear every single hat, you do everything, to being you know you're the IC, like the number one IC. And then you go to being sort of like a mentor and then you sort of go like as your team grows, as a product grows, as a company grows, you become a mentor and a coach. And at the very sort of end of the line, what you are is a psychiatrist for everyone (laughs) on your team. Like you have to, in that span of time, not only as your company grows and changes, you have to grow and change. You have to know your own psychology so that you can help other people unblock their own minds and do the work. And so you can help pinpoint what's going on in your exec team's conflict. And you can sort of play the coach and the facilitator and make sure that all of these different psychologies are getting along. Mm. And I thought that that was pretty apt and really smart. Yeah. Um, At YC, you guys put together a lot of different resources for founders um, in this aspect to keep them happy and healthy. Um, How have you seen these initiatives um, kind of benefit their success as founders? There are small ways. Small, small things that I think are easy to point to where in general, I think founders feel more supported. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like there's, there's not, there's like a little bit of a placebo effect. Like Mm -hmm. they know now that they can have the problems that they have. And that is comforting in and of itself, regardless of whether or not they address them. Um, They know that this is like a conversation that can be had with VCs or, you know, with YC partners, with people like me. They know that other founders are having these conversations. Again, there's like 
an amount of soothing and comfort in breaking down the idea that I'm completely alone in this. Um, there's like, again, it's sort of like small and easy ways. There's like lists of, uh, therapists and coaches who are great, who are vetted by me, um, that are available to YC founders. You know, they're just like in the sort of resource manual. Can you remind me what the question was? I feel like I'm fading a little bit on that one. Um, how these initiatives have helped increase the success of the founders. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But this is for some reason a question I'm always really bad at answering. Like I just updated the testimonial section of my website, like, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know, last week and literally read through all the things that my clients have said about how I've like helped them and have unblocked them and have like, um, trans transformed their work, you know? And for some reason, like it never goes into my brain mm-hmm. at all. Like I teared up a little bit when you were introducing me because it's like, wow, I, I do not realize this stuff. <laughs> Can you... How it helps other, how it helps people be successful. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, some things that we, we talked about earlier yeah. was bringing you, you know, sort of that third perspective. And just as I did for you in the intro, you kind of get an outside perspective and it allows you to get back into that front part of your brain yeah. and really start putting the pieces together. Right. And um, I think the people that say, you know, they helped tr- you help them transform their company. You help transform them. It's really that moment that when they switched back, they're like, oh, actually, I have the power to do these things. I have the support. I have the people to talk to. Yeah, absolutely. I think I also help them locate the skills that they have or that they can build in order to do so. Like in the early days of building startups, the relationships that you have with your co-founders and your early team members and your investors are one of the most important currencies and resources and assets at your disposal. And if you can't sort of have a good relationship with any of those people, like you're losing 60% of what can really help you. And I'm thinking of like a couple clients I saw this week where they were at loggerheads in one way or another in an important way with their co-founder or with their team. And they could not figure out how to move forward. And like just in talking through the situation and saying, Oh, when you, when they said this, that like, I don't think that's what they meant. And you took it to mean this thing that wasn't right. Mm-hmm. And so like, if we shed a, if we shed a little light on the reality of what's going on, like you can unblock yourself here and create a stronger relationship with this person and continue to move forward and execute on stuff. Like the relationship pieces are really important in the early days. And I'm also thinking like, yeah, there's just like, there's so many things. Like there's so many things. Okay. I think this is what I'm thinking about as I'm listening, as I'm like trying to keep this question in my Mm -hmm. small reptile brain. Um, the way we communicate is like our communication is passed through the filter of how we feel. Mm -hmm. And that is why communication is so often distorted, Hmm. you know? And like when we're angry, usually our communication will be totally avoidant of what's going on because we, so many of us have a hard time being angry at people. You know what I mean? Right. And like when you can sort of sit and think about how you're feeling and the words that are coming out of your mouth or what you're typing in Slack, you can see that your communication does not match up with what you want to say and how you feel. Mm-hmm. Right. And so like a lot, a lot of my work, maybe 55 to 60% of it is like, tell me what you thought you wanted to say <laughs> and show me what you actually said. And let's figure out why they're so different. 
mm-hmm. you know, because people start here and they end up here and then they're like, and I can't believe that this person didn't hit the milestone or I, and I can't believe how my co-founder responded to me, you know? And it's like, well, that's because what you said wasn't at all what you thought you said. Right. It's like a really kind of magical moment for people when they look at what actually came out of their mouths. It's like why I love Slack and why I love email. So <laughs> like, there's truly a record of how you're not right <laughs> about that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that can actually be like really powerful and super helpful. If you're, if you, if you have like some sort of a sense of like, Oh, I'm feeling something that means I have to pay extra close, careful attention to what I'm saying. That shows up in so many different ways to the mm. benefit you know, of my clients. A lot of these struggles aren't just unique to entrepreneurs or founders. And you discussed earlier kind of the beginnings of your mission of, you know, matching these people with the money, with the power, with the ideas to the people that you've seen were struggling before. And so how do you see in your picture, um, we can better remove that stigma of mental health and reaching out for help and those sorts of things. Yeah. I, th- I think that probably the best way to dissolve stigma is to keep talking openly with ourselves first, mm-hmm. with our friends and family second, with people who don't know us third, about like what our own internal worlds are like, you mm-hmm. know, like what we all struggle with and what we're all afraid of and um, what makes our lives, however great and glamorous they seem on the outside, hard for us, right. you know, like... Stigma is all about, oh, this is weird and it's wrong and it's like dirty and it's gross and it shouldn't happen. And the more people can say, this happened to me and this, this was my experience. And it's, and it was an important part of my journey because it taught me this or it taught me that. And, and it's okay. Um, I think the better off we'll all be. And the, if, if you are like an important or influential person in tech or even in your company, you have an outsized impact on making it much easier for people who have no, like no social power uh, to also be able to say, Oh, this, this happened to me too. Mm-hmm. You know, if Elon Musk were to like come out and, and say like, I don't know, write a book about my struggles with mental health or like my suicidality or, you know what I mean? Like a lot of other people would be able to say, Oh, Elon Musk struggles. That, that means that my struggle is way okay too. I didn't right. know. I didn't know that he did that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think uh, it's important too. you know, if you're trying to get other people to share that vulnerability, you stepping up and doing it first um, makes it a hundred times easier for them and being able to relate to that. And again, removes that stigma. Yeah, totally. I think we're all infinitely relatable, but Mm -hmm. some of us, all of us, maybe I hope should be brave and standing up and saying, this is what happened to allow other people a connection point. Right. Right. Yeah, it, it does take an act of courage for sure, but it's worth it, I think. Yeah. Um, how do we better connect those who need help with those who can provide it? Yeah. Do you mean in terms of founders or in general or just people? Human? I think in, in general, people. Yeah. Um, this is a good question. I've thought about it a lot. It's not easy. I mean, okay, the lowest hanging fruit in terms of helping people sort of get the the support that they need is certainly in starting to be open with friends and family because Mm -hmm. friends and family are usually around and they're always free. (laughs) And they're (laughs) often like a lot more open and willing to talk about what you might be struggling with than you think. Mm -hmm. And so that's like lowest hanging fruit. 
next lowest hanging fruit, I think, is getting a therapist because um, therapists are like professionals who are designed to support people. Like they're professional supporters. They have a lot of years of experience in supporting many different kinds of people. The hard thing is that it's, it's like not easy to find a therapist. It's like a pretty antiquated old world that relies on word of mouth and whatever. It's hard, but it is super worth it. And so use psychologytoday.com. That's like a great worldwide directory of therapists. Um, if you're talking to friends and family and you're like, I think I need a therapist, ask them if they've seen one or if they know one, like just Mm. sort of start asking for it. But therapy is the best, the best, uh, way to get deeply supported. It's so important, especially as we're all like only on computers now, it's like a face-to-face meeting with the human that reminds us of our humanness. The other thing that I'll say is therapy. Like one of the reasons why people don't get into therapy is because it's expensive, but almost all therapists have maybe one or two slots that they keep open or that they have available for people who can't quite meet the fee. Mm -hmm. And so you can ask a therapist if you're interviewing them, if they have any sliding scale appointments available, or if they could uh, drop their rate to match your income. That's a great option for really early stage founders or for people whose companies just went under or, um, you know, it doesn't matter. Anyone in the world can't quite afford it. They think can ask for a sliding scale appointment. The most important thing is, is getting outside of yourself and um, basically finding those other people, whether it's friends or family, or you're taking that next step with a therapist. I Um, agree. When we, you know, were cavemen or in a tribe or whatever, we had an entire group of people that kind of helped us with our life. And in today's modern society, we have ourselves, maybe we have a spouse or, you know, a brother or sister or friend or whatever, but it's usually only like one other person. Instead of an entire group of people. Oh my gosh, it's a little terrifying. This is um, sort of a weird example, but I I really sort of came to know this through the number of other women who, uh, like, I have an amazing lady that like waxes my eyebrows, mm-hmm. and I have like the there's like a woman who does my facials, and I absolutely love her, and like the woman who's cut my hair for like five years, and like I have a, a lady masseuse, and she knows everything about my body. You know, it's like this is again a weird example of a tribe for me, but it's like these women help me take care of myself. Mm -hmm. And it's like, they know so many things about me and I know so many things about them. And like, I have seen them through ups and downs. They have seen me through ups and downs. And like, yeah, it's like whatever. I also pay for, pay them for their services, but like, that's okay with me. You know what I mean? It doesn't feel inauthentic, but I, I can't even tell you like how important I've realized this, this group of women who are around me are to me. Mm-hmm. It really sort of blows my mind. And like, yes, I also have like friends too. And like coworkers <laughs> in life have also have a family. Um, but it's just like, I, there's no reason to not have multiple tribes and right. to get connection and support in any aspect of your day. Your barista, they can be a part of the tribe. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. find these people literally anywhere and get to know them and share something about yourself and see what you get back. You know, ah, Yes, I, I just love it. Like connecting as a human to another human is one of the most powerful ways that we can heal ourselves. Absolutely. Um, so a question I have for you is in the work that you have done in YC and been so much in startup world, do you see a startup for you in your future? I would never do that. <laughs> I would never do that to myself. I would never do that to myself. <laughs> I am 0% interested in doing that to myself after <laughs> everything I've seen. Maybe that's not a really optimistic answer, but I'm fine. <laughs> yeah. 
What's the uh, most exciting one that you've seen so far that you're excited yeah. about right now? In mental health or in the world in general? Uh, both. Let's let's say both. Okay, I'll go with in the world in general because I am um, not super optimistic about a lot of the like mental health tech apps mm. um, that I've ever seen. There's one uh, app that I think was in the last summer's batch. They're called Project Ren, okay. W-R-E-N, like the bird. And uh, they provide you with like a sort of fully detailed assessment about your carbon footprint. It just in the world, like as a human, and they provide you with like, yeah, clear ways to offset it. So like uh, me as a, and I don't remember what my stats are, but me as a human, I like eat up this much, uh, this amount of carbon. And so I should buy this number of trees to sponsor Mm. the Amazon rainforest or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so they're doing a lot of really good work. And I think everybody should know what they're consuming and find ways to offset that. So yeah. I think uh, that's really cool too, because if you put sort of a number and a leaderboard and stuff to yeah. it, you're gamifying it now and people always want to beat the game. So For they're sure. like, can I get my number down? Can I get my number down? I know. Ideally, like that would come from a deep care and compassion about the right. world. Like we'll take what we can get at this point. Absolutely. <laughs> well, uh, before I get to my last question, where can people find more about you and the things that you're doing? Yeah. So, uh, my website is www.foundercoach.io. I might have the .com soon, but I don't yet. And that's all I do. I mean, I hardly even check my website. I'm not on Twitter. (laughs) I'm definitely not on Facebook. Like just go to my website. I'm hoping to be posting a few more blog posts in the, in the next few months. And I have some fun ideas for them that I think are going to be really helpful for people. And so I, if I were anybody who was curious about this conversation, check back on my blog, foundercoach.io slash blog. Awesome. Well, my last question is how can we push the world to evolve? Okay. I have really been thinking about this question, Brandon. And, um, I am so curious to know whether this is one of the questions that you're going to cut out after editing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. This is so recently I've been reading a lot of books about Albert Einstein and his theory of relativity. Mm-hmm. And uh, for a lot of reasons, I'm like fascinated by quantum physics and quantum mechanics and in a past life or in a parallel universe, I wish that I were like an astronomer. Mm. But like one of the things that his theory of relativity showed was like, he, he has this example of like, there's one person on the train and they have a ruler and there's one person on the platform and they have a ruler. And when the train starts to move the rulers, although they're, you know, at, and with no motion, exactly the same size with, with movement, the rulers change sizes. Mm. And like, that is a fascinating thing. How can that be? The rulers were the same size. How can movement like impact the world in that was supposed to be such a fixed state in that way. And one of the things that his theory sort of blew apart was the idea that there's one empirical observer in the world whose perspective is correct. And I see this sort of playing out all the time in founding team dynamics, the idea that there is one right perspective Mm. and it's probably mine because I'm the observer of my own experience, you know? And, um, like the new thing that I'm sort of realizing, like my theory of general emotional relativity is like, we each have our own ruler and they have a ruler and the world is the same, but our rulers are absolutely completely different. And each observer is just as important as the other. Mm. Right. And so this sort of plays out in founding team dynamics where like, again, I sort of mentioned, I have clients all the time who come in and they're like, like there's this deadline how on earth could this team possibly have missed it? 
of course they know how important it is. And like, of course I've communicated it to them. And like, of course, everything I know in my own experience of my startup and this giant client and how we're performing, like, of course, all of this information is also in every other person's world and every other person's like idea and in their experience, like how can they possibly miss the magnitude of this? But the fact is that like their rulers are completely different. And as a CEO or the team lead, it's like your, it's your job to make sure the important data points in like the important inch marks on your ruler match the important Mm. inch points on that person's ruler. Right. Because like, again, there's two observers, each is equally important. Each is right in their own way. And the CEO and the the co-founders need to find the bridges between each of the rulers in order to have a shared mission and a project that actually is successful. That's like my sort of like startup specific answer in general in the world. I think we would like, it's quite primitive to think like I am right. And my experience of course is shared and everyone should look at all of these perspectives in the same way that I am, you know, like it takes a real act of sort of courage to realize and compassion to realize, Oh, I am important. And this is my ruler and I know everything about it. And for you, Brandon, you have your own, and you are equally important to in your own world as I am in mine. And there, there's just like a lot of, I think, um, humanness in that. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's sensible to me, right? It's like, I don't need to convince you that my ruler is the right ruler. You have your own and that's cool. Do whatever you want with your ruler, right? And let's figure out the bridge points between them because that's mm-hmm. where we interact together. And those should be mutually beneficial too. Absolutely. Well, I can promise that that answer will not be edited really? out. Because that that, okay. Yeah, that was a beautiful answer because it made the point of that question at the end of each episode is really to make people think more. And as you were explaining that, I had so many more questions I wanted to ask you. Oh, great. So Good. that was a great answer. Guys, if you are resonating with any of the conversation that we had today, I definitely reach out recommend reaching out to Amy or going to her website, foundercoach.io and getting the help if you need, especially. So thank you so much, Amy, for being on the show today. Yeah. Thank you, Rannon. Good chatting with you. Hey, you. Yes, you. I want to thank you so much for listening. If this content is delivering value to you, then please open up your podcast app, rate and review. That's really going to help get this life-changing content out to more entrepreneurs just like you who are pushing the world forward. As always, my friend, Keep evolving.